Welcome to The Spawn Chunks, episode number 203 for Monday, July 25th, 2022. My name is Johnny, but the internet knows me as Pixlriffs, and joining me at 330 kilometers an hour is Joel Duggan. Hi, Joel. I'm fast, <laughs> and I will always be fast when I'm playing Forza Horizon 5. And if you'd like to hear me talk about the Hot Wheels DLC for that game, we also touched a little bit on F1 racing, which is happening in real life right now. So if you like that, uh, check out the Render Distance. It's the extended version of the podcast. You can get that at patreon.com slash the chunks. Speaking of the extended stuff that we do, this month's monthly hangout will be on Saturday, July 30th. Usually these things happen around 10 a.m. Eastern. That's UTC minus four but we will confirm uh, any adjustments therein on the announcements channel in our Discord. These are the Hangouts where we chat with our patrons about what they have been doing in Minecraft via a live chat. Lots of screenshots. Uh, you will also have the ability to go back and listen and check out the live chat with the screenshots uh, after the fact. Uh, it gets posted to the Patreon-only feed on the Patreon page. And I always look forward to these now. They're like such a fun highlight of the month, getting to see a bit more in-depth detail on what everybody is doing and talking about trends that are happening within the Minecraft community. I expect we're going to see a lot of people hastily revising warden farms and working with skulk blocks and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so has any of that stuff appealed to you yet, Joel, or is the Citadel still on track with the West Hill build? The Citadel is still on track with Westall. Actually, I've made a lot of progress in the last couple of days. It's uh, it feels frustrating when you're in it, but it then quickly subsides as you know you realize at the end of the weekend how much progress that you have made. Uh, the first thing I did last week was uh, look into why my data pack for tables and chairs wasn't working, mm. and I don't know what it was that went wrong. I think I tried to update it to having a new pack meta, so the pack version changes whenever Minecraft updates. Uh, and the current pack version for the texture pack should be 10 and the data pack should be nine. But for whatever reason, it wasn't working. So I just re-downloaded them and reinstalled them and didn't change anything. And they seem to work fine. Great. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, that's good at so least. Can't, yeah. can't complain. The weird thing is I have to have two texture packs installed, both my own personal texture pack for the tables and chairs and the one from the creator, Chuck Chuck. I don't right. know why. Mm -hmm. um, I do have access. Uh, Axel has, you know, DM me before on on discord so i might ask him like what the issue is and maybe how i can resolve it because i'd like to have a more streamlined pack there's a lot of stuff in the tables and chairs that i don't use yeah uh, but uh between that data pack and fun with the uh, armor stand data pack in hermitcraft i was able to decorate the inside of the stone tower house that i talked about last week that we just kind of left sort of empty um and I really find these three data packs are all I need to kind of just push vanilla Minecraft into a place where I can decorate an interior and have it look like, you know, player scale stuff. So yeah. using the data pack from armor stands on Hermitcraft to create crossed swords hanging on a wall, uh, using the chairs to just have chairs sit sitting around. Uh, and then using things like the mini blocks, which is another um, vanilla tweaks mod, um, that I trade emeralds with the wandering trader to get various different kinds of blocks. And you can get things like log blocks, which look like small versions of the big log blocks. So it looks like, you know, chopped wood and wood piles and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes to what we've talked about before with like anytime that you can place something in Minecraft on a slight angle, it creates all kinds of diversity in that space visually because normally everything's stuck on this 90 degree right angle thing. So I did that. 
and then um, moved on to the area near the West Gate. Uh, the builds near the West Gate have been like skeleton builds for a while, just like roof frames and loose posts for where I wanted things to go. And so we turned the building that is directly attached to the gate into a uh, guardhouse. Uh, and then we kind of continued that along and created some um, details and finished the roofing on just kind of like a general house that you might walk along past the street. You know, things are like there's a downstairs and there's like an upstairs that kind of overhangs the street a little bit. Uh, the only thing that we didn't get to there is the foliage. I tend to do that all at once rather than build by build. I like to kind of go back through the street and change a bunch of stuff. And the um, the other thing that we haven't done is a plan for some sort of like guard hut or like some place where the guard would stand with maybe like a little bit of rain protection or something like that. And, and there's a large space just to the right of the gate as you walk in that's kind of empty right now. And I'd like to fill that with like a post, like a, a place where the guard would be posted, whereas the house is kind of like where the guard would live or several guards might live uh, in that way. Uh, and then the final thing is the blacksmith originally this was two different buildings a stonemason and a blacksmith and as i was getting frustrated with uh the the build for the blacksmith and realizing that i was not going to have a lot of room inside the build uh, i decided to combine both buildings by adding uh, like a t-juncture in there and uh it made the roofs more interesting it added like a third peak which now is pretty iconic because the materials I used were deep slate and stone. And you've seen this kind of like stone brick outlined roof all over the place in Minecraft over the years. And um, I haven't done it on purpose just because I've, I've been trying to avoid using it too often. And uh, for a mason though, or, and, a, and a blacksmith, it kind of made sense to have a very sturdy looking, almost castle-like feeling home. And so uh, I dove into that. There is still some texture work to be done on the roof. And I, I did not have time to do the, mo the most fun thing, which was actually the, the, the um, smokestack and, the, and the, the forge at the back, which is an outside thing with like a, a wood awning that kind of hangs over it. I didn't get to that, but that's next. So it's a multi-stream build because it is quite, quite complicated. Uh, but I, I did enjoy the combination of uh, deep slate basalt and smooth basalt in the lower half to kind of mm -hmm. create some texture in there and then we went through all kinds of different experiments uh and some of them were getting close to working including some mangrove but there's a mangrove wood um build nearby so i didn't want to double up on the red wood but i've really been enjoying this technique of laying down something like stripped logs or a smooth looking block and then putting signs over it in rows sure. yeah yeah and I find that it just, it gives you like this idea of a slightly busier texture or a slightly reinforced texture. It gives you some geometric depth because the signs have like a small thickness to them. And I've really been enjoying it. It's a neat trick. So for anybody that's been stuck on some, like if you've been building with wood a long time and you have to, God, I'm just so bored with, you know, uh, plank texture, run some stripped logs and then run some signs over top of them. And it'll give you a completely, completely different look. It kind of reminds me of layered house siding that I think is a lot more common in the United States and you know most of North America yep. than it is over here in the UK. But that's the kind of like cladding on walls that you tend to get. And it has more of a 3D texture than something like planks would because you're effectively overlapping a, a bunch of different planks at a slight angle to each other like the top the the bottom part of one overlaps the top part of the next one and that kind of texture is difficult to reproduce in minecraft because you don't have 
enough stuff that really has that kind of angle built into it because they're all cubes of material so having signs for that is is pretty pretty good and as long as you can kind of suspend your disbelief a little bit it, it becomes like quite a versatile way of decorating walls like that it's been really fun to, to play around with and the thing that i like so much about it even though we did not end up using the other colors is that um, it looked good over like green terracotta or like I said, the red mangrove wood. And because I was using the spruce signs, it took the brightness of the mangrove wood and really toned it down to the point where like, I know what it is. It's just a sign over a red block. But for whatever reason, when you back up a couple of blocks, it starts to kind of blend together. I mean, I, I think it takes an experienced Minecraft player to kind of see that that kind of color blend without seeing the individual blocks. But yeah, I think I, I'm to that point. The only thing that was frustrating about all of this is that I tried all those wonderful different colors, liked some of them, but ultimately still liked the spruce <laughs> logs better. Mm -hmm. So the build has yet more spruce and stone in it. So like, well, it's a trap that I've kind of painted myself into at this point. So at least I'm trying to make it look more varied. Um, but that's that's kind of it. it. It was a long time working on that that stonemason build like that was a lot of block selection and testing different things which it's it's fun sometimes to do on stream and and fun to have those conversations where people are coming in and going like wow like you really are picky and i'm just like i would argue that most of the minecraft players that you watch are probably picky you just may not see how picky they are on youtube <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah like it's it's the kind of thing i've started doing a lot more creative planning for builds instead of doing all of the umming and eyeing in survival on camera and I feel like that tends to streamline people's impression of what kind of builder I am. And, and I'm very much the kind of person who will go back and forth over a detail like this for a while. But lately I've just started to use my time slightly differently. And I find that when I'm designing larger stuff like this bridge on Empires, it's been a lot more straightforward going into creative mode and being able to make all of the choices there and being able to swap out stuff here and there and then really just... The, the survival stuff becomes about collecting the materials much more than it is about making design choices. So what have you been up to? Uh, the first task this week was resolving the issues with my zombie spawner skulk farm on the Minecraft survival guide. This is one I talked about, I think, last week or the week before, in which the spawner that I was trying to generate these zombies at was low enough down in the world that I couldn't just have them spawn and then drop and then take the right amount of fall damage that they would die. Like, it was just slightly too short for that. Uh, because what I was planning on doing was dropping them onto a stone platform with a skulk catalyst nearby, generating stone using a natural stone generator, and then having the skulk take over these blocks. Unfortunately, I had to make a couple of compromises, and they had to fall into powder snow, which would kill them more passively, but killed them over a longer period of time. And that just didn't work out super well. Eventually, I decided I'm just going to redesign this whole thing. And... I've now got a tray of water that directs the zombies into a standard bubble column that pushes them up 30 blocks. They drop down, they even drop down through a lava source so that they take a little bit of lava damage and are taking fire damage as they fall. And then you don't need the powder snow at all, they just drop onto a stone platform and, and die. I made a couple of other design choices because the skulk itself needed a more contained area or rather it needed less blocks immediately around it that could be converted into skulk because the interesting thing about skulk is it actually travels through the blocks when that skulk charge is looking for new blocks to infest. So if you have a lot of blocks connected by skulk or skulk vein, then it will search further and further away because it will travel through those to get to other blocks. So if you isolate it 
uh, f completely from its surroundings by digging out a couple of blocks in each direction, it won't typically find places to travel. But if it will travel through your redstone circuitry, if that's all on blocks that can be converted into skulk, or the skulk vein can transport it, then you end up with more problems. So that was a bit of trial and error, but I managed to pretty much figure out how to get this sorted. And also, I made the farm AFK mineable by reducing the platform of stone to only five blocks wide, since that's the furthest you can reach with a tool when you're mining without having to move at all. So what I now have is five hoppers all linked together. The stone generator platform pushes out towards those. As the zombies fall, they end up taking enough full damage that they die immediately. The blocks get converted to skulk, and I'm standing at the end with a hoe, breaking all of the blocks as they get pushed out into the platform. Beyond that, there's very little else to the farm. The other cool thing is um, I was sent a really useful tutorial video from a guy called Todd13plays, which I credited in the video that I, I put out about this because it's a really cool technique. They've got a way of effectively using a couple of comparators to make sure that your skulk sensors will only output redstone power on a very specific signal so the frequencies that you see those tables of on the minecraft wiki where it says you know if you get uh, either a player eating or an entity dying nearby or this or that like a fishing rod or a, a projectile landing those all produce the same frequency when a skulk sensor detects that with a comparator outputting to interpret the the redstone signal and the way Todd set it up was that there's another comparator after that piece of redstone that detects whether or not the, uh, the the redstone signal is any higher than you want it to be, wraps back around and uses the locking repeater behavior to make sure that the repeater that's your output for the redstone power gets locked before it gets powered. And so if the signal is too strong, it basically locks the setup and doesn't allow the power to escape. The skulk sensor still activates, but it doesn't produce anything from the circuit that it's actually outputting redstone power from and so you can use that to detect very specific frequencies without worrying about other noises like the pistons firing nearby or you know the zombies groaning as they fall or something like that none of that is going to affect the output of the mechanism and so now i've got it set up so that every time a zombie falls and dies that triggers the redstone output which means that the machine produces more stone and since every zombie that dies can in theory convert five of the neighboring stone blocks into skulk it produces five stone each time a zombie dies and then those five stone are converted into skulk and then the next zombie dies another five stone blocks are converted into skulk and it's pushing them out five at a time converting them five at a time as well and when that works, it's a pretty decent system. Uh, it's not going to make skulk blocks at you know ridiculous amounts of miles per hour, but I think it is uh, it is a pretty neat farm. I really enjoyed watching the flaming zombie bombs come down. Yeah, and, and <laughs> yeah. Hit the. It's, I mean, like if you have a chance to light one on fire, why not? You know, they they yeah. cause you a lot of grief early game. It's nice to kind of get your revenge later on. And uh, we mentioned it, I think, before on the show. Like the Rube Goldberg aspect of these kinds of farms is always fun. I just yes. like. There's something so satisfying about moving mobs around with water, bringing them up, dropping them down, having them do a thing, whether you're collecting bones or like you making skulk and harvesting with a hoe and like all that kind of stuff is very, very cool. I'm curious though, and I will have to go watch um, Todd's video because I, I understand what the locking repeater is doing, but I don't understand how. Mm -hmm. So... 
when the signal, I like, I understand that the, the a signal of a specific length will activate the monostable circuit, but what is it about the locking repeater? Like, cause I'm in my mind, I would imagine that you need, you would need a comparator to do that function. Yeah, so the way it works is, say you want a signal strength of 8, right? Your initial mm -hmm. comparator is going to output whatever signal strength the Skulk sensor generates. So right. if it hears an explosion nearby, it's going to generate power of 15, the same with a piston firing or retracting. And those are all different frequencies. Um, and so if the initial comparator generates more signal than that, the second comparator detects that the signal is higher transmits it to another piece of redstone dust that if the signal is higher than what you want it wraps around into another repeater and that repeater locks your power output so basically it's making sure that the signal doesn't go over a certain strength and if the signal reaches a specific strength then that allows the power repeater to actually get powered like it's not going to wrap around and lock that second repeater um, it, it's it's very difficult to explain, and again, this is the problem with explaining redstone verbally. It's so much easier to just look at this stuff. Um, but you also well, that's, need... and that's my issue is that I've seen your video and I've I've looked at the thing, and I still don't understand how. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I still don't understand how the eight locks the repeater. Like I understand that you've got a repeater going into the side of another repeater, and there's a lock, mm -hmm. but. I don't understand how that locked repeater knows the difference between a four and an eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I, I recommend watching Todd's video because yeah, that's okay. just just that piece of information instead of all of the other context I'm giving it in my video. Right. So we'll we'll a, a we'll link idea. it in the show notes too. I'll I'll dig it off your video and I'll put it yeah. in the show notes for this week. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, worth doing. And I honestly think that I'm going to be using Skulk sensors a lot more now. I know how to do this. Um, but the other thing I've been doing this week is doing a bit more work on Empire's SMP. I've added an off ramp for the Great Bridge uh, so that it can lead out towards my ruins that i'm building right now because the only other way of getting to my empire is through a hill and i plan on building a big gateway and a kind of more of a, a kind of castle gate sort of thing there but that's going to take me a while to design and build so I'm, I'm coming up with other solutions in the meantime and the other thing this allowed me to do was give a, a big square patch of wall with no detail whatsoever when I was building it so that I could add in an old wishing fountain that I designed for an old episode of Decidedly Vanilla back when I was on that server. And it's where people can drop off emerald ore blocks in exchange for more emeralds than they would get with fortune. And you can set this up however you want, but in theory I'm, I'm giving them three emeralds per emerald ore block. It's probably worth a little bit more, but um, I figure if you're only going to get 2.2 emeralds on average fortuning emerald ore, give them three and that's pretty much a guarantee that you'd get, you know, more on average than you would with fortune three. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of in the business of preserving stuff on this server and we're going to be talking a lot more about that in today's main discussion, but... I, I kind of like the idea of there being some place that people can almost use like a wishing fountain to throw something in and get something of value out. I might end up even um, like putting other rewards in there a bit later on if people aren't interested in getting the emeralds but do want to get like diamonds from it or, or whatever else. Um, and aside from that, I'm currently in the process of getting a lot of mud and because one of our players is basing in a mangrove swamp and I don't want to tear up all of the environment for their base, I'm going way further out to a mangrove swamp that's about four or 5,000 blocks away from spawn and 
getting a bunch of mud from there. And I thought, I probably just need to set up a renewable mud factory so I can convert a bunch of the dirt that I'm digging up from this area into mud. So I've ended up doing that now, and I have a couple of other plans for that, maybe getting renewable clay and terracotta from there, and other bits and pieces that can go on. But I'm still establishing a lot of infrastructure for the stuff that I want to build long-term in this series, so it's nice to start uh, working on farms like that, for, especially ones that are newer to, to 1.19. I like the idea of the fountain. Uh, by the time you get into a developed server, so many people have the things that they want and a good part of the experience of going around the corner in Minecraft and just discovering something cool as you're kind of like gearing up and building your base or looking for a specific resource that might be scarce, that kind of stuff starts to dwindle from an experience point because as you get farther and farther in the game, you just kind of have the things that you need to just knowingly reproduce the stuff like once you have the mangrove swamp and you've found a propagule you can make as many mangrove trees as you want back at mm -hmm. home right yeah so the discovery of a swamp is less exciting um, unless you're looking for a cool place to build but um i like the idea of these fountains because then you as a you know the ma maker of the fountain could include all kinds of like either junk or cool stuff or have have that random you know kind of like rng factor of like well i'm gonna go participate in this in this fountain but if I, you know, if I get an emerald back or if I get a diamond ore back, that's really cool and fun. Whereas I might get a shoelace, you know, or a, yeah. a rotten flesh or like whatever it is kind of might be a fun way to kind of create a small, I don't want to say gambling, but kind of like a fun kind of like RNG experience out yeah. of it. Yeah, for sure. The um the other thing I want to do is eventually I'm going to get a uh, a deep slate emerald ore, which are obviously the more rare counterpart to emerald ore, and I want to set up a separate fountain for that. And a couple of people in my community had some great ideas in the comments of this latest video where they said for the deep slate ore one, you could set up a separate thing where it it filters the deep slate ore and if people throw one of those in then they get a prize. But then you can siphon off any other items that they throw in if they're trying to like trick the system, and then that could trigger that could trigger like a skulk shrieker, and then throw a pose uh, a potion of poison at them or something like that. So like the fountain is displeased if you like try nice. and con it into into throwing something else in there. So I I, I like that idea. I'm probably going to draft a couple of variations on it, and I'm planning on building a separate deep slate emerald ore fountain in a in a different area. So. That's uh, that's probably where it's going to go from here. It's really cool that you can do stuff like that with potions and like, you know, not necessarily kill somebody, but like give them blindness for a few minutes or like something like yeah. that could be really, really fun. Uh, I guess some of that is like the the, the suspicious stews. So they'd have to still willingly drink it because you can't do blindness with like a splash potion. Yeah, bl right? like blindness not... I think is is specific to to stews, stews and yeah, yeah, it's is a kind of difficult status to get. But then yeah, I mean there's there's poison, there's weakness, there's slowness, mm. all of that kind of stuff. Like you know even even turtle master or something like that where it gives them slowness six but resistance four. Like there's <laughs> there's some wacky stuff like that that I can throw in there, and I'll probably be brewing a few potions for other stuff anyway. So I like the idea. I think I'm gonna experiment with that a bit more in future it's too bad that the blindness is only with the suspicious stew because uh, between a skulk trigger and a blindness like um potion drop that someone might not see talk about a way to spoof the warden yeah absolutely. <laughs> you know, like yeah, that's... you could really give someone like wait a minute this this feels real 
yeah hold no, on a second you know it, it is kind of a shame that we can't do that or, or that the shriekers that you take elsewhere don't just give you blindness like i know it's it's disconnected mm. from summoning the warden but i was kind of hoping that they would be able to give you give you the blindness effect if you moved them oh well not to worry uh we should probably get into the news before we uh, get too far into this uh we've got minecraft java edition 1.19.1 pre-release 6 and release candidate 2 this week we'll start by talking about pre-release 6 both of these are available as uh, full change logs on minecraft.net and those are linked in our show notes as well so changes in pre-release 6 include that skulk catalysts will now drop 5 xp instead of 20 xp when broken and colors of the signing indicators for sending a message in chat have been adjusted for improved accessibility so for people who are you know difficult have difficulty discerning colors colorblind folks uh, those are now slightly different colors which will hopefully be more visible to a broader range of people uh, technical changes in pre-6 include the run underscore command click event for text components no longer supports any commands that send chat messages and slash tell raw should be used instead. There are also a handful of bug fixes arriving with this pre-release. Those can be found at the Minecraft.net article, once again linked in our show notes. Next up, release candidate 2. Uh, they mentioned that if no critical issues are found, they expect to release the full version this coming week. Uh, so stay tuned in case we get a full 119.1 release. But the changes include tweaking the names of chat preview options and adding a warning toast when connecting to a server that doesn't enforce secure chat. There are a couple of minor bug fixes along with this one. We didn't really feel like they were worth including in our show notes, but you can find them on the change log if you're interested in that. Another article from Minecraft.net, which I will quote, while we are in the process of updating Minecraft user guidelines at Minecraft.net to offer more precise guidance on new technologies, we wanted to take the opportunity to share our view that integrations of NFTs with Minecraft are generally not something we will support or allow. The article goes on to outline what an NFT is for those who may not be familiar and explains why the concept of digital scarcity is not a good fit for Minecraft's core values of being inclusive and a creative community. Yeah, and I think laying down guidelines about NFTs is a good thing. Um, it's obviously kind of the Wild West right now when it comes to that kind of stuff. And they do make a point of leaving the door open for future uses of that technology if it becomes beneficial. Uh, but in the meantime, it prevents people from using Minecraft assets for what I've seen elsewhere in the NFT space as being predatory and exploitative behavior. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of that FOMO stuff driving people like, you know, people want to get in on an NFT thing while it's happening. And that's really the whole driving force behind it. And that can be especially difficult when you're dealing with younger people who may not be as financially responsible as adults and not really able to see past the fact that it's a a fun thing that they can own in a minecraft game uh so yeah well there are a few things out there that have been pretty severely impacted by this i think there was there were a couple of servers that were basing their uh you know microtransactions and stuff that players could do on the server around uh, nft stuff um i don't know if that was necessarily a beneficial thing and the article outlines that they want everything in minecraft to be available to everybody and creating that kind of scarcity is not really in the spirit of how they want people to use minecraft so makes a lot of sense to me personally yeah i think nfts are an interesting concept i don't necessarily know and this comes from someone that's not deep in the knowledge of nfts but know enough about them to know what they are um i i don't really think that they are at a level where i feel like they're what while widely enough spread 
for the understanding of what they are and what their intrinsic value is um, is known to everybody, and they haven't been they haven't been around long enough to find that balance. You know, yeah. Um, as an artist that has become almost entirely digital now over the last ten years. I definitely saw, you know, an interest in them, you know, like, but for whatever reason, and this could be just my age, it could be just, you know, unfamiliar with the, the you know, the, the full process of them, but there still seems to be something fishy about them for the lack of a better term. And I think for me, and this is just me speaking personally, it has like this value, um, perception of value where, you know, if I go to the store and someone wants me to pay two to four dollars for a loaf of bread, that's reasonable. I'll probably pay it if I want the loaf of bread. If someone says this loaf of bread is twenty dollars, you have to explain to me why that loaf of bread is worth twenty dollars, because uh, it's going to be consumed and disappear and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like when you look at NFTs, for me, there is this value disconnect where. You know, when you play a game and there's like a, a a cosmetic tweak, like a cape or some sort of cool skin, um, and you can buy something like that with like a loot box pack or something, and you can just decide, you know what, I play this game for hours and hours and hours on end, and this costume pack is four bucks and it supports the developer. So sure, because maybe the game is free to play and this is their their model. Um, but if that same um, costume is either one, an NFT and rare, meaning that only one person can have it, or even if it is a, a loot box and it's an $80 loot box, well, that eliminates a lot of people from being able to to afford it. And I think, as you mentioned, with you know people having different levels of, uh, we'll say, responsibility with their finances, I think that it opens up kind of like a, a floodgate of like, should this be allowed from a developer standpoint? And that's where I think NFTs kind of cross into that weird murky um, behavior that you mentioned where like it's it's not always with the best intentions of the people that own the NFTs in mind. Yeah. It's a lot of times people looking to, to line their pockets um quickly and and lining their pockets with potentially volatile cryptocurrency in the process right so like how, that's the other how thing good too how yeah. good is this pocket lining really no i will say that nfts have come up on some of the tech podcasts that i listen to and the blockchain which is the technology behind the verification on uh, some nfts anyway i think is a really incredible powerful tool maybe not for nfts but in terms of like you know if you're using the blockchain to sign the security certificate of something or to do any kind of like authentic authentication behind the scene um that's really cool so i think that right now in like pop culture there tends to be like a blockchain nft like they tend to be grouped together very often and i think that people need to know that they're separate things and while nfts use the blockchain they are not the blockchain in terms of like they're they don't they're not the same thing yeah and it's it's a world that i know very little about so i don't really want to comment further on, mm -hmm. on too much of this but yeah i think it's it's at least good that they're outlining firm guidelines about this stuff so that we don't see too many people doing this stuff which again could potentially be exploitative or against minecraft eula or anything like that i think it's it's good to know that that kind of stuff they're keeping an eye on it at least um and in the meantime, they've made some changes to 
to the game itself. They've nerfed Skulk Catalysts, and my joke is that they've done that to give people something to complain about other than chat reporting. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's honestly a good change because we saw immediately when 119 came to larger servers, like pretty prominent places like, you know, Psycraft, Hermitcraft, those kind of places. Um, immediately we had people farming the warden for Skull Catalysts because they were a prominent source of mobile XP. Like, it, it basically gave you more XP for breaking a Skull Catalyst than using two or three uh, bottles of enchanting, for example. And so that needed balancing. And it was ultimately, you know, warden farms could have ended up being the Wild Update's legacy as far as the technical game is concerned. And it shouldn't have been, because for a start, they were too easy to build. The Warden has a fixed set of behaviours and is arguably even more controllable than most other mobs, because the whole point is to try and avoid attacking it, uh, because you, you're not going to get very far just attacking it up front the way you do with other mobs. And so the Warden is easy to manipulate, and that we you know players immediately get that down to a fine art and create a very, very easy Warden farm. And then they end up with tons and tons of free XP that I think, I mean, this is just a vague idea. This is purely speculation, but I wonder if Mojang is trying to balance the way players get XP because they have another system in mind for using XP in the future and that that might provide like an interesting game experience later, but they don't want players to have immediate access to hundreds and hundreds of levels, which is why they're considering you know, nerfing the bug that gives aggroed zombie pigmen dropping XP when the player isn't attacking them, and they're trying to encourage players to look into long-term XP storage through skulk blocks and that kind of stuff, because maybe they want that system to be a bit more balanced generally, but maybe they have other plans for it in future as well. Um, also, just considering that the Warden is supposed to be such a threat, it feels absurd that people are just farming it that easily to get hold of tons and tons of XP, and that they're effectively incentivized to do that by the amount of XP that the, the Skulk Catalysts drop. You can still break them if you find them naturally out there in the world, but they're still going to just drop 5 XP like the ones that drop from the Warden are. In the meantime, I think the Skulk Catalyst should still be farmable, because I'm using it to build in the Survival Guide now. I've got a uh, an end city redesign that's using it as like part of a wall texture and i like the fact that i can get several stacks of these things if i want to haven't run out of them yet but so i haven't needed to build a warden farm but at least it is possible to get more of them if you want to get more of them yeah i'm surprised that the warden has a drop in the first place like that's mm -hmm. that's when they when they nerfed it this much and it's like what well, you could have just removed it you know because it just it doesn't it doesn't seem to do anything other than incentivize these warden farms, which I mean, definitely pull out any kind of um, it's like pulling back the curtain at a haunted house, right? Like yeah. you make a warden farm that has a glass floor. So I get to watch the warden burrow up and appear out of nothing from a glass floor. So I'm watching the game do its thing. I'm not watching the warden emerge yeah. in the world of Minecraft. I'm just watching the, you know, the weird game mechanic of the warden animation happening. Uh, and, um, and I don't, I mean, like, I can see maybe in some specific UK use cases having a lot of portable XP, but granted, I'm late game. I just have four or five pickaxes, and when one runs out, I put the one that's dead in the shulker box, grab the fresh one, and keep on going. And then once in a blue moon, uh, because I am sometimes killing mobs around or, or doing whatever that my pickaxe does get, you know, replenished, you know, while I'm playing, 
I'll just go to one of my farms, whether it's the Enderman farm. Currently, the best farm we have on the server is the, the gold farm with the zombified piglins. And I know that is going to change. So we're looking into alternatives. But we still have the Ender Ender. And it's a short trip to the end with an established nether network to repair all of my stuff in a couple of minutes. Yeah. So I, I don't see the appeal of having um, tons and tons of portable XP in the form of Skulk Catalysts. I The only thing I can say is just like, some players just really enjoy that idea of like, here's a block that isn't super common and I've got 40 stacks of it just because I, I built this warden farm. Um, but yeah, like I, it's, it's more of a, because they can not that they should, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah, I, it's, I'm not surprised that there, that there's a nerf. I don't have a problem with it, but it doesn't affect me. So I can appreciate that. I, I feel like in, in that light, like if someone found a way to AFK farm the ender dragon, I think Mojang would likely patch it, right? Like it's just not, not, not the spirit of the fight. Yeah. Yeah. Right? No, I, I, th I think ender dragon farms have been possible in future, but I don't think they are anymore. And also the dragon is one of those things that drops a ton of XP the first time you fight it and then doesn't drop much on subsequent fights for, for the right. amount of effort you need to put in i think it's still balanced but it's not dropping twelve thousand xp or whatever the the initial total is it's like 500 from that point onwards yeah. which and, is and uh, have, a lot more balanced <laughs> and we have a data pack on the citadel that the dragon drops elytra whenever you fight it because people the casualness of the server and people were having trouble with dying when they're going, trying to go out and find elytra in the outer end islands and it wasn't yeah. fun so we added the you know you still have to fight the dragon though and it has you have to drop it drops one set of elytra so if there's two or three of you you have to fight the dragon three times to get, you know, a set of elytra for each of you. And even then it's your only set. So we thought that was a pretty good, pretty good balance. But it's this, you know, in vanilla Minecraft, the dragon doesn't drop anything other than XP. You know, I guess you can collect the uh, dragon's breath, but like there's no actual drop, unlike the warden, which is, you know, got the skull uh, catalyst. Yeah. Yeah, but the nerf makes perfect sense to me, much as I'm sure people who were preparing to stockpile all of this XP are now complaining about it. But hey, there's another reason for you to not update to 119.1 if you needed more uh, more reasons to do that. We'll see. Uh, let's get into email. Um, I, I guess it's about that time. Why don't you uh, kick us off with the email? If you would like to email the show, please send it along to spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. Keep them short, keep them sweet. Keep them on point and we will consider them for the show. First email and uh, really the only email this week. Uh, both emails were of the same subject matter. So I folded email number two into the comments. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Uncomfy Mattress, a landscape artist member, has an idea about renewable echo shards. Hey, Johnny and Joel. There have been a lot of wonderful ideas about additional uses for echo shards previously by viewers of the show. However, I realize that some of these uses may even warrant the shard to become renewable even if it is at a slow rate. How would we do that? My idea involves Skulk having a unique interaction with Amethyst. We know that Skulk catalysts create Skulk charges that we can convert most natural blocks into Skulk. Amethyst shards and Echo shards both generate as ancient city loot, so it's plausible that there's a correlation between the two items. Combining Skulk and Amethyst together could create Echo shards, but not simply by putting them into a crafting table, what if Skulk Charges could convert Amethyst Clusters into Echo Clusters? This is how I imagine Echo Shards were created to begin with. The new Echo Cluster could behave similarly to the Amethyst Counterpart and drop Echo Shards instead. 
I really like this idea because it expands off of the observations that you can already have in game and it allows the echo shard to have more uses without worrying about scarcity. Maybe this concept can be applied to converting other blocks with skulk charges to make other unique blocks or items. Of course, making echo shards renewable would make exploring ancient cities less enticing, so it may warrant coming up with a more unique loot for cities. What that could be, I'm not entirely sure. What do you guys think? Thank you so much for the wonderful discussion. I will note that Uncomfy Mattress is alive at the end of their email. <laughs> yes, yes. Very much we alive. Always, we always like to see that. Um, yeah, I, I think I like the idea of Skulk being able to infest Amethyst because, like you said, the, the evidence is there in-game. These are two items that are very similar. They're both found in the same place in these loot chests, and they have the same sort of shape. They're both named shards. Like, the correlation is clearly there. But I wonder if it would be fun to have Skulk infesting budding amethyst blocks so that they can grow echo shards like they grow crystals now. And that would tie it to the location of a geode so that they wouldn't be as immediately farmable elsewhere. Like if you had amethyst shards from or amethyst clusters from a geode and you could take them somewhere else to convert them then you could effectively farm them wherever i guess you do have to get the clusters themselves from from the geode originally but i do kind of i like the idea of it being something where you take a skulk catalyst to a geode and then everything happens at the geode and maybe give us some way to revert the process because otherwise it could be used to grief people's amethyst farms you know i don't want all of these echo shards that don't really do a whole lot um it makes sense to to have some way of reverting that, like, scraping copper oxidation off with an axe. I was even thinking that, you know, since amethyst buds require a more delicate touch, I wonder if removing or reverting the skulk infestation could be a job for something like the archaeology brush that they initially kind of previewed before uh, the Caves and Cliffs update was split and archaeology was shelved. Um, and I agree with um, Uncomfy Mattress's... Uh, like initial point that the rarity of echo shards is a draw for ancient cities and so any renewability mechanic needs to be balanced with either a change in loot for ancient cities or perhaps another reason to go there hint hint big portal and be more echo shard uses in general i think they need to be for something other than just the recovery compass at that stage but i i do think that in future there is scope for them to be renewable and have multiple uses I'm having a bit of deja vu with crystals, sounds, and opening portals. And I don't know whether it's from a sci-fi movie or a video game or whatever it is. But I like the idea of, in the same way that we collect a lot of music discs in game, like maybe there's more than just amethyst shards and echo shards. Maybe there's several different kinds of shards. And that as a player, you have to either craft, create, hunt down, figure out a way to get these any number of shards and maybe that is the key to opening up this imaginary portal that we are are all projecting into the middle of the ancient city uh i, I think it would be better if it's not just like walk up to it with flint and steel and light it you know i feel like mm -hmm. it would be cool if there was a way to like if you had to i guess it's a pretty common video game mechanic like you have to collect all three keys in order to open the door that kind of idea and they all have to be turned at the same time or something like that uh, i feel like that kind of idea is cool. And that's why I like this idea of not just crafting something in a crafting bench, but like using the skulk catalyst's ability to change blocks around it into skulk uh, and what that would be and how that would affect 
other specific um specific blocks because like if you're looking at something like what you've got with the the skulk farm like you had to find a, a, a spawner in order to do that and if you wanted to combine that with a geode like you've got to look for a very unique space in the world where a geode is near enough to a spawner that you can have enough xp dropping into your catalyst to affect you know those um those amethyst shards like maybe they don't stay echo uh, clusters maybe they only stay echo clusters for long enough for you to harvest one you know echo shard and then they go back to being amethyst and you have to continuously supply the echo cluster with xp like it sounds like a lot of work but if it's a powerful thing in the end like if it's a cool thing that unlocks a portal or has a different use that we don't know of yet then i think the the work in versus uh, reward out there would be would be pretty balanced um one thing I wanted to expand on, which I thought was an interesting idea brought up by Uncomfy Mattress, was what other unique skulk charge to block combinations can we think of? Do you have any off the top of your head that you think would you like to see in the game? I don't know, really. Like, I I feel like it it suits Endstone pretty well. If if Endstone had some kind of more unique interaction with it, that was probably the first place my brain goes. Um, what about you? You've had more time to think about this than I have. So Skull Confused Endstone was one of the things that I thought of too, just from a decoration standpoint. Like Endstone has been lacking for ages. There's like two different versions of it. Uh, and the visual relationship between Skulk Catalysts and Endstone is is obvious to me anyway. Um, so what if just, instead of just having more kinds of Endstone generating in the end, uh, which I mean, I think Mojang should do as well, players could use Skulk charges to convert Endstone into something more interesting for building. Um, I didn't really get as far as function. I got mostly into like thinking about making it not an ugly cheese block. Uh, Endstone not being renewable does mean it wouldn't be as convenient as using a stone generator like you're doing. But uh, you could have maybe that be uh, something that has to be combined with um, Skulk on a crafting table. Because then you could have, you know, you basically have infinite Endstone because of the way that the end is you know, generated. So you can go get some from the outer end islands if you don't want to destroy your local island uh and and craft blocks that way uh, the other thing that i went to uh was uh sound related because we've got echo shards and for me they kind of evoke kind of a sound idea so skulk charged note blocks an echo note block or a succumb blocks would be uh kind of fun and those could increase the range of a note block so maybe um, players or allays could hear it from farther away. Uh, and then uh, it would also have like a cool Minecrafty texture. Maybe it looks more like a speaker or something. Like, I don't know, like an organic speaker would be kind of cool looking and just give you an interesting block to kind of play with from a visual standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of where I went. Uh, and then we had another email that was very, very similar. Uh, and uh, that came in from uh, CO117 in chunk mail and they were talking about using echo shards to replicate an allay so using uh, an allay uh, to change it into an echo allay that would maybe have super hearing be able to hear note blocks from further away remember them longer or uh, maybe even be you know only able to hear specific note sounds so in the same way that you were filtering different sounds with your skulk um sensor yeah the, the allay this this echo allay could be tuned to like i don't know a trumpet 
you know, or a chime, you know, like mm-hmm. a specific um, kind of note block. That way it wouldn't get confused with if you had more than one allay and more than one note block set up in close proximity because of whatever you were trying to do. Uh, I added that, you know, it would be kind of cool to add like a purple allay. If you added an echo shard to an allay and duplicated it, maybe you get a purple one. Um, and and does it come with extra functionality like um, like the email suggested? Sure. But like it, it may be people might just want something other than blue, you know, and that might be enough, you know, for players to be just like, well, I really want a yellow one. Like I really, you know, what what kind of like, uh, what if it's a sun shard? You know, one of these new crystals that comes in, maybe it's a sun shard. Maybe that turns a lays yellow. Maybe that does something else to them. I don't know. I, I just think the idea of crystals and skulk and they both grow in a weird way. And there's just, to me, there's something unique there that's very different from go mine a block and smash it together with other blocks in a crafting table. That I yeah. really, I really like the idea of something more than just that. I think everybody knows how to do that, and I'm not saying they're tired of it, but it's not surprising. And I think that these new surprising mechanics that came in, specifically around sound with 119, I think are are really really cool. And I'm I'm hoping that Mojang explores it more. Yeah, like I do really like the idea of echo shards being useful for allays. Now we have allay duplication, and that's through amethyst shards, especially because it's something that requires a fair amount of effort to go and acquire and that is commensurate with the reward of having an allay that's more sophisticated in terms of its overall behavior and again not sure how difficult that kind of stuff is to code and i can see why the regular allay has much more basic behavior but i think it becomes infinitely more useful if you can fine-tune its behavior and it doesn't just have to react to whatever nearby note block there is you know i i've i've used delays a little bit and i think they're great for small tasks but i would love them to be useful for something bigger and i think the thing that's holding them back is the ability to assign them to a specific sound and no other uh, and that's not something that they've included in the game just yet yeah i agree so moving on to the main topic for this discussion this is something that i had on my mind um because I'm actually I'm actually going to be talking about it more this next weekend. Um, on Empire's SMP, while I'm not necessarily doing the acting side of roleplay on the server the way some of the other folks are, I found that this common theme of restoration and preservation is driving my role on the server this season. I'm rebuilding ruins from the distant past. I'm encouraging some players to preserve some stuff that they find, like emerald ore from the, the wishing fountain thing and... Uh, a fossil that we found on the server i decided we need to make a glass presentation box around this because it looks kind of neat um and that side of my series has got the attention of some archaeologists who are also gamers and they've invited me to a discussion panel as part of the archaeo gaming collectives 2022 conference that's going to be broadcast over on twitch uh between the 29th and 31st of july my panel is going to be happening around 8 p.m bst on july 30th that's at twitch.tv slash rko gaming underscore collective i won't spell that out for you but if you're confused about how to spell it we'll have a link in our show notes and i was thinking about some of the discussion topics that they've kind of primed me with beforehand and how as players we kind of have the agency to remake the entire world around us but many of us end up choosing to preserve some aspects of the world and this is quite common behavior this isn't just me thinking about what i'm doing on empires this is 
people choosing to preserve the look of a particular biome because they really like how it looks or structures from an older Minecraft version once your world updates and those structures have changed, or even down to silk-touching ore blocks instead of destroying them for resources. And so I thought it'd be kind of fun for us to talk about what we preserve about our own worlds, what kind of drives that instinct, and what purpose preservation in a digital game that you can just recreate everything from scratch anytime you want to, what purpose does preservation serve in these gaming worlds? So on the Citadel, I'll speak for myself and in a way, kind of the, the royal we on the server, because we've had some conversations about this. Uh, mostly for us, it's about the the landscape. Uh, it, it Unless it technically calls for something weird that has to happen with terrain generation, uh, where we functionally need to remove a huge chunk or something happens where it's just ugly. Uh, and that's usually with older versions of the game because the Citadel has been around since 112. So every one now and again, you get this weird piece of, you know, just floating earth or, you know, tree or something that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But most of the time we challenge ourselves to not just flatten and build. I think the one exception would be the modern city because we would really run into a lot of frustration trying to have roads go up and down not in one meter chunks with the blocks that we wanted to use. So mm -hmm. the the modern city has has very few hills in it. But other than that, we try to build on and around the land. And uh, I personally cut down as few trees as possible. I just like the look of trees in game, um, especially early game. And I feel like sometimes it's even hard to cut trees down if they're really big. And, you know, you're better off spending time in a controlled environment harvesting wood than you are um, necessarily cutting down big trees sometimes. And the flip side of that is that while I enjoy making the odd custom tree, I don't want to make dozens of them. Mm -hmm. And if I clear cut an area, then I then have to repopulate with trees. Whereas if I can challenge myself to kind of build something around, and it's not that I don't cut down any trees. Like sometimes I just like, all right, well, this is growing up through the middle of my roof and I don't feel like building a tree into this house. So I'm going to try and remove it. Um, but other times like, you know, trying to bring back my early Minecraft brain, there's a tree in the middle of Dartmouth Meadows that was just a really large natural oak tree that was there, natural generated from by Minecraft in the middle of a plains biome, not another tree for miles. And I just thought that looks kind of special, kind of reminded me of the tree over over Bag End, you know, in Lord of the Rings. And mm -hmm. I just thought, I'm just going to keep it. And that became like the town center. Like we just, we have a ring around it. There's a little pathway that goes around it. There's bridges and all the paths kind of shoot off in different directions. So it very much feels like the hub, you know, in, in the area. And that was just like on a whim. And I, I feel like you might have the same experience when you're in a new Minecraft world. Like you, I find from my experience talking with you, you often find the terrain informing what you want to build. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely it does. And interestingly enough, I did the same thing with a a tall oak tree that I grew in one of the early episodes of Survival Guide, like right outside my starter kind of farmhouse build. I kept that for the entirety of Survival Guide Season 1. Like that that tree was there. I think I added a couple of blocks to it so it looked like it had roots, but it was one of the big oak trees. And I was just like, I'm leaving this here. I think that's going to be like a center point for the series and, you know, the farm kind of built up around that. So yeah, like I, I think that's an interesting instinct possibly driven by just how awkward it is to cut down those big oak trees as well because you get about seven blocks of wood from it and thousands of leaf blocks 
I'm exaggerating, but it's it's almost the case. And so, yeah, like there's there's a lot of stuff like that that, like you, I do find myself, yeah, taking cues from the landscape and using that as inspiration rather than flattening areas out. It's also, you know, the the kind of thing that we take it, it, our experiences from real life and translate them into a Minecraft context. So large cities can typically end up being built on big flat open areas uh, because it's pretty difficult to get materials up and down hills even at, you know in our current situation um whereas primitive civilizations and stuff would have had a much harder time doing that and so if you're building a medieval place then for a start you're building it around water like you're doing with west hill you've got a big river that goes through there maybe you're diverting some of that manually but even then you're kind of just shaping stuff that already exists there and you're building in a large flat open area where people don't have the hardest time getting around and it is unlike humans to build cities that happen like along the side of mountains because that's just a, a difficult thing to do it happens but yeah you can definitely take a lot of your cues from the terrain and so in that sense the terrain is something that it feels important to preserve it's also quite a task to get rid of a lot of minecraft terrain because of the tools we have available to us we're only able to move stuff one block at a time if we want to keep the resources if you want to blow it up with tnt you still have to gather a lot of tnt so in a lot of cases it makes sense to do just a bit of gentle shaping to the landscape around you instead of demolishing the entire thing and flattening it out unless you want a lot of dirt and stone which you know i've i've come into a situation now where i do need a lot of dirt and stone but i still don't want to completely transform my landscape i think there's a better way to do it than that and i've you know a lot of my dirt and stone has has come from an underground mine under the swamp where yeah. i was trying to clear out caves and thought well if i'm gonna run around and light up these caves i'm gonna want stone and all the resources anyway i'm needing to make the witch hut more efficient and by doing it all underground i'm not creating a giant pit you know which can look cool like if you want to actually make it into a build and create like a quarry and have it look like there's stuff being pulled out like that's a whole other thing but in terms of just gameplay like having this big empty box underground where you really can't see it most of the time is is a nice way to kind of preserve the swamp uh, and everything on the top. Now, that said, I took out a lot of the swamp to get it all down to um, water levels, right? Yeah. So for me, that was really important. Uh, and it uh, affects the look of my my farming area in, in the swamp. Um, as far as Westhill goes, uh, which is the, my, my main build right now, one of the challenges that I put to myself was building around and on the existing landscape. That included the river, the taiga forest, uh, and the plains biome without destroying too much. I will still remove things or in a lot of cases, uh, I absolutely had to like manicure and build up where there might've been like a big five or 10 block dip between two hills. And I really wanted them to be connected and I had to kind of like push them together uh, and build over top of them. So there's a little bit of an empty space underneath West Hill. And uh, in some cases I've built it into the basements of some buildings, but in other cases there's just holes. Um, they're lit and covered, but you know, like I try to let the landscape inform, uh, especially the river. That doesn't mean I didn't shape the river or, you know, change the blocks at the bottom of the river, removing the sand, which I thought was kind of too bright and replacing it with like coarse dirt and dirt and stuff like that. Um, but I, I'm in, I'm letting the natural kind of landscape inform what I'm doing. I'm not completely changing the river 200 blocks in a different direction, right? I'm kind of like accepting that it is where it is and kind of moving to, 
to complete it and and have my build uh, go around it. And lessons learned. I was just speaking on the stream this past weekend about a section of West Hill on the southeast corner, which has the church in it. And it just looks kind of funny. Like the way that the river bends around it and the way that the walls go, it just doesn't seem like that would be the best way for the town to to be constructed. But for me, at the time, I just didn't want this town to be even bigger than it already is uh, and, and expand the walls right up to the tree line. And so it made sense to try and snake it around. And the, the build has been kind of like a yes and exercise as, as well as an exercise in in preserving mm-hmm. the terrain and after a while it becomes an exercise in preserving what you've built like that's the thing like as your your builds become part of the world's history intrinsically speaking then you want to you know start building stuff around those because they become part of the landscape and that's one of the really interesting things about long-term minecraft worlds especially it's it's clear that mojang cares about the history of players worlds they try their best to avoid overwriting anything the player does with the addition of subsequent updates but then you you definitely end up wanting to preserve a bunch of the stuff that you've built so that you can come back to it later. We don't tend to tear down and reuse materials all that often to build something else in our worlds. In the Survival Guide Season 1 world, when I trimmed chunks of my world for Minecraft 114 for the Village and Pillage update, I purposefully left one older village untouched from 113, and it really felt like a, an interesting reminder of the history of the world, and I didn't want to then remodel that village myself to look like one of the older villages i was much more interested in preserving the history of that area of the world and i feel like there's an interesting split between like the fictional history of the world like the world that was already present when you got there or that you build yourself and the meta-fictional history of the world which is like when you actually built a structure like for you you're building a medieval town and so the implication is this has been around for like potentially hundreds of years, right? But in actuality, it's only been there for two years or so. You're just building it to look old. Right. And that's another really interesting aspect of this because from an archaeologist's perspective, they're looking at stuff that in our world was present, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago. And in the case of this Minecraft world, you're trying to build something that looks like it's been there for hundreds or thousands of years, but in actuality is fairly young. And I think that's such a fascinating aspect of all of this. I, that's And that's true when you're trying to do any kind of like foliage decoration and stuff like that too. Like even if it's a yeah. brand new modern house like built in 2022 in your Minecraft imaginary world, you still want to add some grass around it so it doesn't look like it's been there for a minute and a half. You know, like you kind of want to make yeah. sure it's been there for long enough to grow, for grass to grow around it and make it feel part of the landscape. Otherwise, it doesn't feel like... I think that's the thing. If you build something like that and you don't decorate it, it just looks like you built it there and plunked it down rather Mm -hmm. than it being part of the game. Even though technically it's part of the game because you're playing Minecraft, there's just something really odd about like preserving or creating the illusion that you've preserved some of the landscape. Yeah, when really you haven't, you've done a lot of transformational stuff to it. And mm-hmm. so it's like, you know, preserving the world in its original sense just means not really touching anything, but then you're not having a game experience at that point. And um, I feel like there are still practical reasons for doing a lot of the 
natural feeling preservation that we we take on like think think about stuff like silk touching blocks or like digging for terracotta below the surface of a badlands biome like a lot of the times people are doing that for aesthetic reasons and it's also a simulation of respect for our own natural world because you wouldn't want to go and visit someplace that you know was effectively a quarry um unless you have a particular fascination with quarries or unless it becomes something interesting and different later like it's transformed into a reservoir or something like that but because biomes like badlands are infrequent in minecraft and they're more varied and visually interesting than the average forest or savanna I feel like it's it's an interesting case in reasons players want to preserve the outward appearance of that biome while still wanting the resources from it. So everyone starts their terracotta mine a couple of blocks below the surface. And, you know, silk-touching ore blocks can be better for storage, you can build with them later, and it gives you more options of what to do with those later. The other example I come up with is cobwebs. Like, you know, if you break a cobweb with your hands or with a sword, it drops string. Uh, but then if you use shears on it, you get the cobweb block and you can build with that later. And that's necessary because there's no other way to acquire cobwebs. Whereas, you know, some of the other stuff might not be as functional. Cobwebs are very functional. It can be used for a, a variety of things, not just for decoration. So I think there's interesting and practical reasons for preserving a lot of stuff in the world while still allowing yourself to move it around because archaeologists will do that you know they're not leaving all of the artifacts and stuff where they find them at these archaeological sites they're taking them elsewhere for preservation for future research the difficulty comes with like when you throw a sandstone block into a chest with a bunch of other sandstone blocks that you've just dug out of the ground how do you know that that one sandstone block is from a desert temple you've dismantled the answer is you don't right. and at that point you have to create some kind of metafiction around okay if i'm building with this i'm mentally acknowledging that these are the exact blocks that were taken from this desert temple when in reality there is no way for you to know that like the game is not tagging them that way unless you rename them yourself in an anvil or put them in a very specific chest you're not going to know which sandstone you found at that desert temple because it's all bundled into the same stack of items with something else and I've seen players do something like that uh, when they will get their first diamond or their first diamond ore if they happen to have silk touch and they'll like name it and throw it in an item frame somewhere, you know, in their mm -hmm. in their home to preserve it in, in game. Um, we do similar things to the Badlands uh, example on the Citadel. We've got a, a coral reef and a large mangrove swamp uh, as well as nice spikes. And the just the general consensus from members of the server is if you're going to go in there and harvest stuff which is what they're for um do it from the backside yeah. you know so generally the closest end of the biome is the one that people are going to arrive at first and uh or someone will scout around and go like all right well even though that's the closest end it's also the ugly end so like have at it you know but don't don't maybe um destroy all the mangrove trees around this really cool pond with a ravine in it you know or don't uh, for us the coral reef is really big so start harvesting the coral from the very far west end of it which is not really near anything special whereas the end that's near the coastline where people might, might want to build houses that overlook the coral reef don't harvest the coral from there because then you're going to be removing the pretty thing that people want to look at and mm -hmm. and i find as far as resource collection goes 
you'll even see things as far as uh, Ginger the Lily's example in the chat, which is having a different dimension in a custom server where you can actually go to harvest and damage the world with no cares whatsoever to preserve the world that everybody is playing on and, and allow people to just get what they need without having to worry about stepping on others' toes or destroying the landscape and, and that kind of thing. Because yeah, it's an an approach that works really well with the Nether is having a Nether that you just blast out for Netherite because everybody on the server is going to want it. But mm, then you have, mm -hmm. you know, a completely destroyed Nether dimension versus one that you actually want to use for server transport if you're creating a Nether hub and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we take things a little bit further on the Citadel and uh, without even realizing it, some of those things that are fun to leave, like spooky spider webs in a uh, Minecraft. Um, mineshaft uh we can craft like we have a custom data pack that allows us to craft uh string and uh slime into spider webs mm. right uh -huh. so it means that i don't have to worry if i if i like where it is and i want it to remain spooky and cool i can just leave it you know and and stuff like that i i think is is a neat way to get around it i'm struggling to think of other examples um for it but th those kind of recipes where you can craft something that is otherwise um rare or something you might not want to destroy I, I maybe another good example would be something like a uh, small drip leaf you know uh or yeah. Yeah, or, yeah or building a big redstone farm like our big redstone moss farm that we have um on the server it's there's all kinds of moss and moss related stuff coming out of that so if someone does find you know one of those rare uh, lush caves they don't have to feel the need to destroy it for the resources they can just take you know, if they want their own moss, you know, chain of, of experience, they can take one moss block and go from there. Or, yeah. you know, they can go to the moss farm and get all the things that they need and leave the, you know, the lush cave as is because they're really cool looking. Yeah. And the thing is, renewability and the uniqueness of an item really work for the same kind of thing when it comes to preservation because if you consider the fact that you can get bone meal from a whole variety of ways you know if you're playing in non-peaceful modes you can you know kill skeletons for it you can farm a skeleton spawner you can make a moss farm and compost stuff you can compost your surplus crops all of that gives you different sources of bone meal and then when you encounter a fossil in the game, which are going to be between like 30 and 120 blocks of bone, give or take the ones that are replaced with ores, it's a lot of bone meal. Or you find one in the nether, for example, there's a lot of bone meal there. You understand its value as a resource, but you can also weigh it against the rarity of encountering, encountering something that's naturally generated like that. And you think, well, I don't need to break this fossil up for the bone meal because I can get bone meal renewably. Whereas on the flip side of that, you might consider something like Echo Shards, which are currently a unique item you can only find in one place. You might not want to craft them into a recovery compass because you don't see the need for a recovery compass. And the Echo Shards themselves are just interesting, unique items. And so you don't just leave them because they're junk. You want to take them with you because they're loot. But they're not loot that has any intrinsic value other than this is a unique item. And right. so it's really interesting that both of those angles can lead you towards the preservation of something like they can they can kind of you know both sides of that give you reasons to want to keep that stuff around have you ever done anything like um specifically with like a, a fossil where you, you've unearthed it and then taken screenshots and then like reconstructed it somewhere as like in a museum or something like that where you wanted to recreate it 
block for block, but then either remove it from the world or maybe leave it in the world. You just wanted to have it on display, but not have to go down to the bottom of the world to see it. I never did that with a fossil for the Survival Guide Season 1 museum. And it's funny because that seems like the most obvious thing to have put in the museum, but I just didn't get around to it when I was doing all of the generated structures. I did that with a desert temple, though. I actually took all of the blocks of a desert temple, packed them into shulker boxes, and used them when I reconstructed the desert temple. The kind of loot chamber underneath it and all. Like, I did mm -hmm. the whole thing. And I did that for Survival Guide Season 1 in the museum. I tried to do that with a pillager outpost, but I only got two-thirds of the way down the structure before the pillagers attacking me just got too much, and I bailed. And I did the rest of it, the cobblestone at the bottom and stuff, with resources that I'd gathered from elsewhere. But yeah, I've rebuilt several of Minecraft's structures block for block, along with you know the biome dioramas and stuff I was doing. And some of those were rebuilt using material from the original structures. I think I did the same with a desert, uh, a jungle temple, and you know, including the redstone and the pistons and everything that I that I got from that temple, I ended up taking to the museum and and rebuilding them there. I think I did that, and. I'm pretty sure that there is video evidence of it, but it's entirely possible that I could have just chucked all of the cobblestone and stuff into my storage system and then pulled out some completely different blocks of cobblestone and built exactly the same structure. And we get that ship of Theseus argument of like, if you have replaced this thing with different parts, but all of the parts look the same, is it still the same temple? You know, is it still the same ship? And I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is in a Minecraft context. It sort of multiplies it by the fact that all of these materials can just be thrown into an anonymous pile and then pulled out from later. It makes you wonder what they may have in mind with the archaeology update, right? Like it just, because I, I don't know if you create a very rare block in the game for me to go find and I can't craft it. I can only find it when I find it and I mine it up and I get the one thing. I don't get like 12 of them. I get one. I, I don't know like what exactly I'm going to be using that for other than putting it in a chest somewhere and say like, I got it, I found it, you know, and I, I don't know what value that holds for me as a player. Other people may be different, yeah. you know, other people, people that collect Pokemon might be just like, no, 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 I want the thing, you know, like just <laughs> yes. give me, give me the thing. Uh, and, and I, and I, I wonder if, if there's some sort of balance, you know, like we were talking about the skulk catalyst earlier. I wonder if there's some sort of balance where, a certain tree of maybe decorative blocks or building blocks is unavailable to you until you have, you know, this one particular thing. And like, maybe it's something as simple as like, um, very similar to how a note block when placed on various different blocks will play different musical instruments. What if a crafting bench placed on this one very special block that you have to find through archaeology then unlocks and allows you to craft a specific type of block? You know, <laughs> that's that's what gives you concrete slabs and stairs, maybe or whatever. You know, like, imagine maybe it needs maybe it unlocks a twelve uh, uh, a, a four by four crafting grid. You know, and and oh gosh, like that's the only way to to create <laughs> some of these things, right? I don't know. Like I'm just yeah. I'm just trying to think of like because if it's if it if the block that I get from archaeology, assuming it's a block and not a fancy vase, like if that's a thing that I get, and the only thing that I can do with it is place it on the ground and look at it, or stick it in a chest and look at it, I I have zero incentive to go find that thing for me as yeah. a player, right? Yeah, yeah, and and it's interesting because there's obviously so little supporting information about stuff that we find in the world and that encourages the player to speculate about their history and so the archaeology system we're looking at is really more like a storytelling mechanic than it is a 
you know, a, a resource gathering mechanic, or at least as it was presented at Minecraft Live, what, three years ago now? <laughs> that's that's sort of what we ended up seeing. And, like, it, it's, it's interesting to me because on a metafictional level, if we're looking at the game's development the past of every world is a lie because none of this stuff ever existed at any previous point in the game's development <laughs> but each minecraft world is going to come with a past that's built in on a game level and so if you're immersed in the fictional aspects of the world you think of this world as having a past that is longer than the time since you last created it and that's that's the that's the weird part that's the the cell of archaeology at that stage if it's going to be introduced as a system I think that's probably where we're going to wrap things up for today, though, because we could talk about this for a while, but we're not going to reach any kind of convenient stopping point. Um, if you want to hear more of this discussion, once again, I'm going to be on the Archeo Gaming Collective's Twitch page talking about this sometime on Saturday around 8pm BST, so stay tuned for that if you want to hear more. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Heather Christie, who is um, an archaeology professor, I believe, at the University of Glasgow, and has her own series, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more, but looking at Minecraft from an archaeologist's perspective. It's really interesting stuff. In the meantime, uh, if you're interested in finding out more about this show and our history and uh, links to some of the stuff we've talked about today, all of that stuff is at thespawnchunks.com. The music for the show is composed by me, and the Spawn Chunks is proud as ever to be a listener-supported podcast. If you're getting some value out of the show, you can put some value back in by visiting patreon.com slash thespawnchunks and pledging to join our community. Pledging at any level gets you an invite to our patrons-only Discord chat, and you can participate in things like the live show recording that happens in Discord every week, and the monthly Minecraft audio hangout, which, as Joel said at the top of the show, is coming up this weekend as well. We're currently at 349 patrons. There is always room for more, and special thanks go out to our content engineers, Hunter555, five jumbo sale and yits for your support on this episode sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show you can find us at the spun chunks on twitter and instagram personal recommendations are by far the best way to share the podcast just tell a friend about the spun chunks and that they can listen on itunes spotify google podcasts even youtube wherever you can find a podcast you can find the spun chunks you can email the show at spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. The RSS feed is linked on the spawnchunks.com and the patron-only RSS feed is on the Patreon page. That's where you can listen to the render distance, the extended version of the podcast. My name is Johnny, but online I go by Pixorifs. You can find most of what I do at youtube.com slash where I try to make sense of this bizarre and wonderful game in Season 2 of the Minecraft Survival Guide and Empire's SMP. I also stream three days a week on Twitch, where I do behind-the-scenes work for the aforementioned YouTube series, and I'm the voice of the unofficial Hermitcraft recap, which you can find through a quick YouTube search. Aside from that, I'm at Pixorifs on both Twitter and Instagram. Joel, where can people find you online? Everything I'm doing online, including my illustration and design portfolio, is at joelduggan.com. You can listen to my other podcast, all about sci-fi and fantasy entertainment, at thecitadelcafe.com. You can follow me at joelduggan on social media and joelduggan on Twitch, where I stream from the Citadel at least three times a week. Thanks for visiting the Spawn Chunks. The world outside is infinite, and that's worth preserving. <laughs>